everyone and welcome back to another episode of The World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, rays and the ocean brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. Today's episode is the last in our little South African mini-series. We started with Pippa Ehrlich, filmmaker and director of the award-winning documentary My Octopus Teacher, and we're ending with another award-winning filmmaker and marine conservationist, Craig Foster, who you might recognise as the main protagonist of My Octopus Teacher. But today we're not talking about the documentary, but the very special place in which it was filmed. A place that Craig has spent his entire life exploring, documenting and sharing with other people. As you'll hear, it's a habitat that means so much to Craig. And it's one that he has a very deep understanding of and a very deep connection with. I am, of course, talking about the Great African Sea Forest. This is the only forest of giant bamboo kelp on our planet, stretching 1,000 kilometres from the shores of Cape Town in South Africa to the coastlines of Namibia in the north. It's famous for the towering thickets of kelp that sway with the motion of the sea and harbour an astonishing diversity of life, from tiny invertebrates like nudibranchs to great shoals of fish and many species of shark and ray, all of which we'll be talking about. Kelp is not only important for these creatures, but also for us, for humans, as it stores carbon from the atmosphere, protects us from storms, and, as Craig will explain, is a very important part of our heritage. I've been lucky enough to explore this place myself, and even got to go for a dive with Craig after we recorded this podcast. And as Craig describes here, it really is like being able to fly through the canopy of a forest and it's just such a magical experience because there's so much life supported by the forest and you just feel very much at peace while you're there. But at the same time, you also feel like a big kid in the best candy shop ever, poking into all the little hidey holes seeing all of the creatures that are there and just gliding between the kelp stipes. It's an absolute dream. One of the many reasons why the Great African Sea Forest is so special is that while, sadly, many kelp forests around the world are suffering, this one seems to be thriving. That isn't to say there aren't threats to the sea forest. There are many. And that's why Craig has devoted much of his life to telling people about it and encouraging its protection. This is why the Sea Change Project was created. Co-founded by Craig and Ross Freinlich and led by a team of passionate scientists, storytellers and conservationists, it aims to raise awareness of the importance of the sea forest and the life within it through storytelling based on science and direct immersive experiences. Their work includes films, including My Octopus Teacher, books, exhibitions, impact campaigns and scientific research. And this now also includes a project funded by the Save Our Seas Foundation, a thousand and one sea forest species, which Craig is leading with another member of the Sea Change team, marine biologist Yanis Lanshoff. Much of the inhabitants of the Great African Sea Forest, and even the forest itself, have never been studied. 
Craig and Yanis hope to change this using a combination of research and science-led storytelling to bring more people into the world of the sea forest and encourage action to protect it. In this episode, we talk all about that and the Sea Change Project, as well as explore the sea forest itself. Craig has spent many hours tracking and learning the language of the ecosystem, and he talks us through many of the species that can be found there, including sharks. We also talk about his life and how the ocean has been a constant feature throughout it, and why the ocean is so important to him, and why he chooses to immerse himself in cold water every single day. This is a really special episode with someone who speaks so incredibly thoughtfully and openly about their relationship with this amazing blue space that we are so lucky to share. I feel very fortunate to have been guided through a small part of this very special part of the world by him and many of the little trinkets that he found for me on the seafloor, including an urchin exoskeleton pierced by an octopus, a cuttlefish bone, and some discarded shells sit on my desk as a reminder of that time. I would highly recommend you listening to this episode somewhere cozy or even outside with your eyes closed and imagine yourself weaving through the kelp fronds, watching the fishes go about their day and being carried gently by the swell. I hope you enjoy this one. Without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Hello, Craig Foster, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Wonderful to be here. Lovely to meet you, Isla. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you as well. I've heard so much about you. All good things. All good things. We are right beside the ocean that you get to go into every single day. So it's a really special thing to be able to come and meet you in person and be very close to that amazing environment that we're going to talk all about today. I'm really, really excited. But we like to begin and end every podcast with the same question for every guest. For you, I know you, every experience in the ocean is memorable for different reasons. But I wondered if there was one in particular that stood out for you. I have had, you know, so many incredible experiences. But when I listen to your question, because it's a world of sharks, one thing just popped out from, I don't know why, it's not necessarily the, um, the most powerful, the most interesting, but many years ago, I was fortunate enough to do some diving off the east coast, further up the coast here at a place called Alawal Shoal. And we spent, I think it was a month or more, mm-hmm. every day um, getting taken out with a boat and dropped I think it was about seven to ten kilometers offshore. And then uh, we got to almost every day dive with this group of tiger sharks. And we've, there was quite a strong current and we'd float for ten kilometers in the ocean with these incredible animals. And they were huge. I mean, they're at first incredibly intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all females, but after a while you realize just how extraordinary they were and how they weren't interested in, they were interested in us, um, but they were not interested in harming us in any way. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, had some of them had 14 plus remoras on them. They looked like these giant galleons moving through the ocean. Um, and just to be intimate in that intimate space with those animals, you know, up to 10 of these massive sharks. Um, it had such a profound effect on me that at night, before I went to sleep, I used to have these sort of um, almost waking hallucinations of being back in the water with that, these animals. Um, and they were just so big and so gentle and so powerful. Um, and then sadly, um, I heard not long after that experience, the, some of the fishermen took out uh, most of those sharks. It was just heart, heartbreaking. Um, but the memory of diving with them stays with me and uh, just their, their size and their grace and just being alone. Because the boat used to leave us and then come pick us back up. And it was just, um, you know, the most incredible experience. And they were, which is, I think, still such a mystery, is they would sometimes like to make physical contact with us, but gently. Okay. Um, and I've noticed that um, with quite a few species of sharks, even though they have no parental care, they, um, you know, not being cuddled or, 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 or or nurtured in any way when they're young, mm. yet they come for often for human touch, which is, I mean, obviously not, not all sharks, but um, certain individuals. Mm. And these animals were, were doing this of their own accord. And it was mm. yeah, quite mysterious, but incredible, mm. yeah. So you mean kind of like rubbing against you yes. or letting you put your hand? Uh, yeah, I mean, we'd obviously, uh, you know, I was I wasn't trying to make contact with them personally, um, but they would come up and they would they would, they would rub against, uh, and it wasn't like a, a mouthing or anything like that. It was, no. it was really interesting, uh, yeah. Nice. And then I, I experienced the same thing in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. um, and and here as well. Sometimes mm. the animals will come and and make contact. Yeah. I think that's the most. That's the most special thing is when it's on their terms oh, yeah. and they're coming to seek you out mm. rather than you trying to initiate that kind of contact. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I do, I completely resonate with what you say about having a large, an animal as large as that. And especially, you know, a predator, an animal that we're taught from a young age to fear or to mm. see in a negative way just going about their daily life you're not a big part of i think a lot of humans imagine that when you drop into the sea all of the animals or all of the sharks especially turn around and they go are humans here Um, and in reality you're just not really on the radar at all and you're able just to observe them in their natural environment and i don't think anything can replace that feeling of just being a privilege to be part of their world even for a short space of time yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the pishy tiger sharks have quite a big prey base, mm-hmm. but it was very clear they were not interested in us as food in any way. Mm-hmm. And mm. I've heard that, you know, we hear that a lot on this podcast mm. of a lot of people who have had these really profound experiences with sharks, not necessarily because, you know, the sharks are inquisitive or interested, it's just being around them. They're just such an incredible animal to be around. You have a very, very deep connection to the ocean. 
Um, but I was interested in, have, has that always been the case? Has the ocean always featured in your life? It always featured. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a little wooden bungalow, which was actually part of the houses below the high water mark. So, um, you know, most of my early life was in, was literally living in the intertidal zone. The, the, the waves used to crash, smash the house down uh, quite often. <laughs> um, so it was very intimate and every day I used to be um, in, in the water. I started diving when I was three years old. Um, so that I've always been close to it. And then I've worked throughout Africa and deserts and all sorts of places but I've always had that pull to come back here to the ocean um, throughout my whole life but it was about 12 years ago now where I decided to really intensify that love and I decided to go in every day for 10 years but I, I think it's been now 11 or 12 years almost pretty much every day wow. um, so it's just for me, the more I've got to know um, the sea forest and the environment here, the more it excites me and the more I'm drawn to it. So it's, you know, even if I'm sick, which is very seldom, the cold seems to improve one's immune system a lot. I would still go in, mm-hmm. um, maybe not for very long, but just that commitment every day to to go in. And so it's not difficult. It's almost like... A, so I find it hard sometimes not to go more than mm. once. So sometimes we're doing two or three dives a day if, mm. if there's time. I was going to say, does it feel, uh, do you feel a bit off if you haven't been in the water? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a massive, um, especially in winter, in false bay when the temperatures are colder, the, it has quite an effect uh, on one's mental state. So you feel very different if you haven't mm-hmm, gone in. Mm-hmm. Have you ever have you ever lived away from the sea? Years ago, you know how many thirty or thirty plus years ago, I lived in London for a year and a half. That was extremely <laughs> difficult for me. Yeah. Mm, I can only be in London for like a maximum of three days, <laughs> and then I need to leave. <laughs> um, but you also typically dive without a wetsuit and very minimalist gear. Um, and when you consider a lot of our listeners, our listeners are from all over the world. And you mentioned earlier that the temperature here can be anywhere between 10, 12 to 16 and over, which is, which is typically cold as, or seen as cold. Um, why do you prefer to, to dive this way? I like the feeling of the water on my skin. So I like to feel the you know, the kelp on this, my skin, I like um, to feel those tiny shifts in temperature because when I'm tracking underwater, sometimes I'm tracking animals by using temperature. So mm-hmm. It's much easier to feel that. But the main reason is that the cold water changes your brain chemistry quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. There's an enormous increase in dopamine and adrenaline and noradrenaline. And that makes you feel very good and it kind of sharpens the mind so it helps the underwater tracking Mm -hmm. Um, and the cold um, the cold stress uh, improves your immune system dramatically Mm -hmm. so 
I mean, after a while, you can spend quite a long time in the water without getting cold. So it's almost like having a kind of a wetsuit, but it's underneath your skin and you can move much faster without the, the wetsuit. Although I think that the new wetsuit technology is pretty good these days. Um, but I much prefer the intimacy. So what I'm trying to do is get as close to this environment as possible. Even if I wear a rash vest, I can feel that separation. So I'm trying to get as close to um, these animals and this environment without disturbing them as possible. And I find that easiest when I have the least amount of equipment, mm. the smallest camera, you know, the smallest little light uh, and just the very basic uh, equipment. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot more freedom that way rather than being encumbered by you know when you when you're diving sometimes in cold water you've got a dry suit on or you've got a, the bc or you're taut and all of these things hanging off you and that can be quite distracting so, so i'd rather actually i mean i can after all these years go for a long time mm -hmm. but even if i was you know sometimes if i haven't slept well if i have a physical injury the it affects one's ability to thermoregulate. Mm. And then I've got far less time in the water. But I'd still prefer a shorter time without the wetsuit than a longer time with the wetsuit. Mm. So even if I'm scuba diving here, I will try if I'm feeling strong enough to go without the wetsuit. Mm. But I'm mostly free diving. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, um, so say for someone at home who's listening, who maybe wants to get into that practice, do you have any advice for them when they're first starting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that the trick is to try and remain very calm, even though your body is going into an environment where it, it can be quite a dramatic feeling, mm -hmm. you know, especially if you're not too used to it. So the idea is to keep calm, you know, breathe very gently mm -hmm. so that you get all these wonderful chemicals like the dopamine and the adrenaline, but you don't spike the cortisol. So if you get a nervous or the cold feels overwhelming, then you will um, <laughs> increase your cortisol, cortisol levels, which is not ideal at all. You don't want that. That's not very healthy. But what is interesting is if you can learn to be calm in the cold, then if you have other stresses in other parts of your life, you can keep the cortisol down. So it's a very powerful way of being calmer in life. Mm. So what I would suggest is that people take it very slow mm. and easy. Don't push it. I've pushed it in the past and then my immune system hasn't been able to take it or I felt actually not good. So uh, go in for just a few minutes at first, especially if it's very cold and very slowly increase that time based upon how you're feeling and how much you've slept and your, your mental state. Mm -hmm. you, it's, it's a slow game of slowly, slowly increasing until you start to know your body, know your mind. Mm -hmm. And then the brown fat heaters will slowly start turning on and they will increase. And then you'll find after you know, a while, you've got this incredible system that allows your body to regulate in the cold. And it's a, it's a really fantastic feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's enormous benefits 
to the, you know, people think, oh, I'm going to get cold, it's not going to be pleasant, but you, you, you learn to love the cold, you, you crave the cold. You know, uh, in summer here, sometimes it's very warm weather and the ocean can get a bit, you know, warm. And then I, I, will, I crave the cold, so I've made an old ice box from a, a deep freeze and I go into the zero degree water just to get my little cold fix. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's almost addictive. I think it is addictive. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned already underwater tracking um, and the Sea Change Project combines underwater tracking with scientific research, filmmaking, storytelling. But I first wanted to go back to the basics and I wondered if you could explain to our listeners what underwater tracking involves and how it's informed your work. Uh, great question, yeah. I mean, I had the privilege in my 20s and 30s to work with these incredible uh, master trackers in the Kalahari, these San master trackers. And it was just extraordinary to see how much information they could extract from a landscape where I could see almost nothing. And there weren't any animals, but the stories of the animals were written everywhere. So when I started this intense diving 12 years ago, um, going in every day, after about a year or so of doing that, I started to wonder, would it ever be possible to do any kind of tracking underwater? But it seemed absolutely impossible. Everything's moving, you know, something makes a mark on the sand and two seconds later it's washed away. And I kind of gave up. And then I saw a, a trail on a rock. Um, and it was a slime trail of a whelk and the sand had collected on the trail and I could follow that trail to the animal. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is, they are, there is an example. Mm -hmm. And from that moment, literally like every day since then, I've seen more and more and more and more of these underwater tracks that seem initially invisible. Mm -hmm. And some of them are incredibly subtle, but there are thousands of them. And they can inform me and give me an enormous amount of information about what's happened in the night before, what's happened in the days before, and even can predict what's coming in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so there are thousands of little marks on shells, on the kelp, on the sand, on the rocks. Um, they're kind of artifacts of of the past that kind of can tell you about of, of what's happened. So often I'll go on a dive and maybe you don't even see that many animals, although here it's hard not to. I mean, they are just thousands everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But um, the really interesting stuff often I can see through the tracks. And if I hadn't taught myself this underwater tracking, I, that would be an invisible world to me. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I've got a few little examples I've pulled out so I can actually show you. So this is an, a helmet shell. Um, and if you can see that tiny little hole there, oh, yeah. that immediately tells me that an octopus has killed that animal. Mm. Um, the This is also a helmet shell. Can you see how much it's, it's like, 
you know, 10 times thicker than that one. Yes. So this tells me that this animal grew up in a highly volatile environment and this mm -hmm. grew up in a calm environment. Huh. Um, so same species, but they look utterly different. Yes, so it's do. telling me about the environment as well. Um, so why is that? Is that just because it needed more protection? So it's developed a thicker... Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the, 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 a big wave takes that thin shell uh -huh. and, and rolls it and it'll crack and die. Whereas this has got this incredible armor and will survive. Yeah. Um, so they literally, you know, I look at that shell and I can see its early life was highly constricted and then it moved into an area where um, it had more space. Mm -hmm. And that's why it grew conical there and out there. For, um, for listeners who are, uh, for, this is for audio purposes, the shell that Craig's describing there kind of looks a little bit like a like a sombrero yeah, almost. Like exactly. <laughs> so it's got like a sort of narrow bit at the top and then like a big brim around the bottom. This cuttlebone, I can tell, has been predated on by quite a serious predator and it's managed to escape and then fix it and then it, it died later. Um, you know, we can go sometimes back. This is a five million year old fossilized shell wow. that tells me a lot about the coastline at the time mm -hmm. is very very different to the coastline now and uh, much higher up mm -hmm. so i mean literally there are just tracks everywhere not only telling you about the animals but about the the climate before about um prehistory mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like um you're going into a kind of it would be like going into a, a cave and being able to look at all the archaeology and mm -hmm. see what happened in the past. But mm -hmm. from five minutes ago mm -hmm. till, till the deep past, five million years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's what the under tra underwater tracking does. And we also track in the intertidal. That's obviously the place where, you know, the high tide comes uh, and then leaves at low tide. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, we, we found a fantastic track where these extraordinary marks um, were printed on the rock coming out of the ocean and into a freshwater pool higher up. And there were ink tracks. So um, because of our knowledge and the, the, the style of tracking, we immediately knew it was a Cape Clawless Otter. And then we had to figure out if it had killed a cuttlefish or an octopus mm. or a squid. Mm -hmm. And based upon the, the ink and the trail, we worked out it was a, a cuttlefish. That, and the, 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 the prints were made by the otter, but it came from the cuttlefish's ink that it collected on its tail and on its body. And it was marking the rock with this cuttlefish ink. Mm -hmm. So we get fascinating examples like that, that I almost feel I've, because I'm trying to project my mind into the tracks, I almost feel I saw that predation. Mm -hmm. But I, I wasn't there. I was there, you know, probably about eight hours later. Mm -hmm. So it's a very powerful way of getting into nature. Mm -hmm. This looking at the tracks and projecting your mind into these very subtle marks and reliving the experience. Yeah, almost kind of like forensics. Very much like, it's very much, yeah. that's a great analogy. You like a detective of the wild. That's a very cool job title, detective <laughs> of the wild. Um, and thank, 
thank goodness that otters are such messy eaters. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> dropping their the ink everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's very, uh, I can imagine it's a very immersive experience, almost like learning to to read a new language. You, you're absolutely right. So I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminds me that in, in my mind, I think in some ways this tracking is the oldest language in the world. So our species, Homo sapiens, is 300,000 years old. Um, I'm almost certain that our early hominid ancestors tracked as well. So we're looking at a language that is millions of years old, spoken by our species. Every wild child before agriculture was fluent in this language. Sadly today, you know, especially our children of today cannot speak any of this wild language and it's the oldest language on earth. So part of our job at Sea Change is to try and bring that language and that connection back to, to people. Because mm, you're very inspired by the, the ancient human cultures. Very much so. That's my other big passion is human origins and I work with an incredible scientific team um, who've done incredible work here on the caves uh, just up the coast. Yeah, and there must be such, just so much to uncover still and so much to learn. And I mean, there's a lot of people now who can't imagine life without the internet. So without looking up things before you've seen it. Whereas, you know, not even that long ago, people were learning about nature just through observing, just through being outside, just through finding things and, and being outside every day and seeing those patterns and starting to piece the puzzle pieces together. And I still think the ocean is one of the few places that you can still you can still do that because you can't take your phone into the water with you and take a picture. And there's a the thing you can do now where it's, um, I've forgotten what it's called, but you can... It, send the picture straight to Google and Google will tell you exactly what it is and within seconds. Whereas you can't do that in the water. You have to, you know, observe, take notes, go back, look through books, see what it is, or, you know, even through your own exploration as you're talking about, try and figure out what that story is or what that's what it's telling you. Um, and the Sea Change Project aims to protect South Africa's marine environment by making the Great African Sea Forest a an icon or, or telling people just how special this environment is. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with this environment and, you know, the, the huge diversity of life that it supports, because I went for a 20 minute snorkel the other day and we saw so many species in that time. It was just mind boggling. Can you tell us why it's so special? Sure. I mean, uh, I'll try and go for a very short version because <laughs> I don't really know where to start there. But um, I think what is so unique about it in many ways is this is the place, this coast, which has this 1,000, almost 1,400 kilometers of kelp forest. Um, is the very the very place where our species work up to our humanity. 
What we're finding here is the first art and the first science at a hundred thousand years old. Incredibly complex chemistry and artifacts and an entire symbolic material culture. And in essence is the are the first books and first computers on earth discovered by our African ancestors at this incredible time period. And these people lived in close proximity with the ocean. And I believe in this nice anecdotal evidence to suggest that this place here was the place where we first swam and we first dived as human beings. Mm -hmm. Because this environment was absolutely perfect for this flourishing of the human spirit and because it was so abundant and so biodiverse that we had enormous time to innovate. Mm -hmm. Survival was so easy. Mm -hmm. They probably needed one hour a day to cover all their food needs. Mm -hmm. So all the rest of the day was open for innovation. Mm -hmm. So we've got this incredible relationship mm -hmm. with this coast that's, that goes back to the beginning of the human mind as we know it. Mm -hmm. So it looks, in, in the archaeology, it looks like we woke up in a serious way at, at about 100,000 years. Mm -hmm. and, and all the innovations on, um, that happened then are what we see today with all our technology and everything mm -hmm. come from there. So we incubated in Africa for two-thirds of our time on the planet. So every human on Earth is, is intrinsically African, but are intrinsically connected to this kelp forest, this intertidal, this coast. This is where we roamed in this time that changed us more than anything else. It, it, it might be even more radical than the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, this incredible symbolic revolution for the, where for the first time we recorded information outside of the human brain mm -hmm. on, 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 on pieces of ochre. So um, it's just got this incredible heritage. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's got this tremendous uh, diversity and biomass of life. Because we've got all these nutrients, we can um, have this. It's an incredible sort of evolutionary memory of where we've come from. And we've got all these extraordinary animals that we've had relationship with mm -hmm. for so long. To add to that, you've just got a, a three-dimensional environment. Mm -hmm. That's what's so amazing, as you know, about the kelp forest. You go down there and it's this giant underwater forest mm -hmm. with animals living in all levels of the forest. And you can fly to the top of the trees go to the bottom, you can go through cave systems, you can go through tunnels if your breath is good enough. So it's like being on a forest in the land, a misty forest on land, but you can fly. Uh, and there are just so many more animals than any of the forests on land. So it's, it's an exquisite space, you know, and the the leaves of the kelp are floating on the top, so you get these incredible shafts of light coming through the holes in the leaves. It's like being in a magical underwater forest. That's such a good way of describing it. I, I'm, I'm going to have to steal that because uh, it's just it is completely true. It's just like you're it's like you're able to fly through, weave through all of these uh, 
the, the great big kelp stems. And when you're down at the bottom, one of my favorite things to do is to kind of roll on my back and look up almost as if you're lying on your back and, and looking mm-hmm. up at a forest canopy. And you see just all of the life that depends on not only you take a kelp frond and you can see all the tiny, like you say, all the tiny little signs of life, even if it's it's not actually there. And then do the same thing at the roots and everything's different. Um, it's a just, yeah, a really, really special place. And of course, here, as you say, hopefully, hopefully in a little bit, we're going to get to go for a dive together, which will be amazing. Um, and now I'll be able to think about all of that not only the biodiversity, but also the cultural heritage as well. I think that's a really cool thing to think about. Um, but what kind of species, I know I'm not expecting you to, to list everything, um, but what kind of species might we expect to see in the sea sure. forest? I mean, what is, uh, what is exciting is that we've got incredible invertebrate life. Mm-hmm. So the invertebrate life hasn't changed that much in over 100 years. So when we look at the invertebrate life, we're looking at uh, a near pristine scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, the, a lot of the reef fish are being hugely diminished. So that, that's um, sad that that is the case. It's obviously mostly due to overfishing and pollution and so on. Um, but all we have to do, because the environment is so intact, if we just let them alone for a while, they would reproduce fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got incredible uh, crustacean life, um, amazing uh, crabs, lobsters, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got um, fantastic uh, shark species, mm-hmm. ray species. Um, we've got fabulous cephalopods. I mean, I call it the octopus village here um, because there are so many octopus sometimes living very close to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quite tolerant of each other. Um, credible cuttlefish. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, and we're continually finding new species mm-hmm. um, and fascinating new behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, the interaction between these species is obviously, there's, there's very little known even about the species, let alone the interaction. So there's more than, you know, lifetimes of work to be done yeah, here. Yeah, everything's connected though. Every, uh, everything will be depending on each other. Exactly. Yeah, and because, because this, is, this is a sharky podcast, uh, The World of Sharks, can you expand a little bit on what sharks we might find here? Sure, sure, sure. So um, this, our smallest shark, is the puff adder shy shark, mm-hmm. and it's got this beautiful um, coloring and pattern on the skin that looks a bit like a puff adder, as in a snake. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called the puff adder shy shark. Mm-hmm. That shark is only about 50 centimeters, half a meter long at, at full adult. Then we've got dark shy shark, which is a little bit bigger. We've got a um, leopard cat shark, which has like leopard rosettes. Mm-hmm. We've got the pajama cat shark. These are all the small sharks that live in Mm -hmm. the forest and like to be in tiny little caves. And they're sometimes even sleeping together, some of the species. Mm -hmm. Um, They're quite social and that they will, you know, sleep together. The pajama cat sharks will hunt together. 
and as you get and, and the pajama catch socks only about one meter at full maybe slightly bigger in at full adult mm. then you get the gully sharks which is uh, they grow up to about two meters and they now look like a what people might see as a classic sort of shark mm. and maybe be scared of but they're totally harmless mm-hmm. and they um gather in groups of up to i've seen up to 70 animals in wow. a group yeah um, mating congregations and so on. Um, then the larger sharks is there we get the smooth hounds as well. Um, we get um, the bronze whalers, which are a little bit bigger. We get, of course, the white sharks, um, although they're not many in the bay at the moment, sadly. Um, we get a lot of um, rays. And we've got this incredible animal, the short-tailed or giant short-tailed stingray here, which is, I think, the biggest stingray in the world. They get up to four and a half meters. Um, saw one just the other day. Absolutely, they're magnificent creatures. Um, so, I mean, the, that just gives you a, a, a rough idea. I mean, there, there, there are quite a few more species, eagle rays, all sorts of other um, skates you know um, but uh, that gives you a rough idea of animals we see more more often than others yeah thank you yeah um i mean even i was astounded because you know obviously coming here you i had on my list of things i wanted to accomplish this year is to see different species of shark because you know I'm, i'm very familiar with the ones that we have at home um and i wasn't expecting to get in the water here. I, th- I thought I'd have to work a bit harder. You have to work very hard in Scotland to find mm-hmm. the sharks. Um, and literally within the first, I think it was even within the first four minutes, we'd found a pajama shark, which was extremely exciting because I've never seen one before. And I didn't realize they actually got to be that, it, I know they're a small shark, but I didn't realize they actually got to be that big. Yeah, they're sturdy, a sturdy animal. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I forgot the seven-gill cow sharks, which mm. grow up to about three meters. They're magnificent, ancient animals with these big eyes. They're fa- fascinating. Fortunately, the orcas have chased them off our usual spot at the moment, but hopefully they'll come back. Yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. So to go back to the Sea Change project, how did that come about? So um, when I started intensely diving every day, as I say, 12 years or more ago, it's slowly that process and the stories that were coming out of that uh, got certain people interested. And uh, a group of people that were just fascinated um, slowly asked if they could join, uh, join me in the water and understand some of the things you and I are talking about, like the tracking and so on. And they ranged from marine biologists to filmmakers to conservationists to storytellers. And for quite a while then they volunteered, I think for almost five years, just to work for free because they're just so passionate and they loved this so much. And we had these incredible experiences together, swimming almost like a, a pod of aquatic um, primates. Mm-hmm. And it was a very powerful experience. Mm-hmm. And out of that, 
pure love and, and passion for the ocean, the, this sea change project and the, the not-for-profit organization kind of naturally just came mm. into being. Mm -hmm. And, and your, your aim is to, your aim is to tell the story basically of the great African sea forest through, you know, various different, different mediums. So our, the, our initial aim was to try to get the great African sea forest as a global icon, because we knew if it had a name and it was known, it'd be far easier to protect. Mm -hmm. And we thought that would take a long time, but because our film, my octopus teacher did so well, that basically catapulted the great African sea forest into this global picture in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. So that was very exciting. And then now we're building on that mm. by telling, uh, because what we've realized is psychologically, like we literally, our, our, our psyches and what we do and our choices in life are made by the stories that move us mm. most powerfully. We literally are made of the architecture of stories. And depending on the story you believe and feel close to, that's how you will interact with the world. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to change the current paradigm where obviously, you know, we are not, um, we're not supporting our great mother in the way that, you know, a, a child would would like to support a parent <laughs> or a mother. Um, so we'd love to change that paradigm and find a way for all of us mm -hmm. to have a different relationship with the wild. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to you know, say that we are any better or worse than, than others. I think we all um, lead contradictory lives to a certain degree, mm -hmm. but it would be great. And I think we I mean, that's the exciting thing about working with Save Our Seas, mm -hmm. is that you can just feel everybody at Save Our Seas loves the ocean and loves this, the, the wild and nature. It's so obvious. It's just so easy. It's just passion. We're working and the passion, just each side of, the, you know, of that coin uh, drives, um, drives it together so beautifully. So we're trying to look to collaborate with like-minded people and organizations like Save Our Seas. Mm -hmm. And because it's gonna, it's gonna be a, obviously a massive group effort. We'll just be you know, a tiny cog in the wheel, but mm -hmm. I think we have enough of those cogs. Uh, I think we've got, there's, there's hope. Yeah, and as things always are, because you need all different, to, to put all the puzzle pieces together and to you know, solve a lot of the, the issues that are facing our oceans as well you need all different aspects of the of the coin so you know we yes we need the science and the research but you also need the stories that are going to connect people with that environment because you know people aren't going to be interested unless they have that emotional connection you know that's what we're all looking for exactly um and i think also that's it's something that we're missing a lot, especially, you know, in 2020, when my octopus teacher came out, a lot of us were in a very scary place. The world wasn't, it was very unfamiliar for everybody. 
uh, everything was changing. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty and I think a lot of this looked to nature to help us with that, you know, for the first time, not just from a perspective of, oh, what is that species over there? Or I'm going to go for a run. It was it was on a much deeper level. Um, and I think my octopus teacher resonated with a lot of people because of that. So um, I'd just like to add, I think, yeah. so uh, even though storytelling might be the sort of focus, mm -hmm. a lot of our work is, you know, in science, and in indigenous knowledge, in tracking, and in direct one-on-one -on -one learning from wild animals. Mm -hmm. So if we combine all those things together, that science and the ancient arts, mm -hmm. um, that's uh, what we find is a sort of magic key to unlocking that door of the story that will appeal to, mm -hmm. to people. So that's, the, that's what we're working with. Mm -hmm. And that, that is what you're... Um your latest project with the funded by the Save Our Seas Foundation, led by yourself and Yanis as well, which is which aims to chronicle a thousand and one stories of the species living within the sea forest. Um, and it was inspired by the, you know, the famous ancient tale, A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. And would you mind telling this story for our listeners? Um, and I was interested to know how it inspired the project. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so Yanis heads up our sea change science lab. He's a wonderful and ta very talented young marine biologist. And we were trying to figure out, you know, we'd had this extraordinary experiences together mm -hmm. uh, and with the rest of the team as well. And we were trying to figure out how how to best communicate this to a larger audience. Um, and we came up with the idea of, uh, could we actually tell a thousand stories and, and could we find a thousand species in the kelp forest? And then Swati um, came up with this idea. She's our conservation journalist and my wife. Um, why don't you have a 1001? And she told us the story she was very familiar with mm -hmm. and it's a story of it's a it, it's deep it, it goes deep into the origins um in 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 asia and um in arabia of this king who whose whose wife um betrayed him and he was so incensed that he beheaded her. And then uh, he, he, was, he got into this terrible state of mind where he kept marrying a woman every day and beheading her in the morning. And it was this terrible cycle of destruction, much like the situation we are in with our planet at the moment. Yeah. And then this extraordinary woman came along um, and married him and instead of the beheading she told him the story but left it on a cliffhanger and he thought mm, i'm just going to wait one one more night and he told she told him another story and another cliffhanger and it, this went on for a thousand and one nights and he was so transformed by the love and passion of these stories mm -hmm. um, that he completely pardoned her 
Um, and, and it was sort of lived happily ever after. So the analogy is that we would like to tell the stories of these incredible animals so that all of us can just walk far more lightly on this planet and care for them um, and look after them. You know, and, and obviously, you know, support the life support system that keeps us all ticking <laughs> and remember uh, where we come from and who's actually in charge mm. and that our economy is a dependent of Mother Nature. We are a fragile little child, mm. re totally reliant on her. We were all born wild and um, we are human animal and we're not separate from nature. We are completely woven into the architecture of the wild, even though if we don't feel that we actually are, it's impossible to be disconnected, even though one might feel mentally like that. Mm. So it's about that deep reconnection mm. um, and also the hard science of, you know, um, these animals' extraordinary lives and how sometimes very, very difficult it is for them to get to adulthood. Mm. So um, that's what we, we're doing. Yeah, yeah, I, I really love that. I love the, 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 the story behind it and um, what, you're, what you're aiming to do. Because I think a lot of people see science as, as very dry sometimes and the kind of emotion is taken out of it. Uh, and. I can, I can say this as a scientist, we're not very good at tapping into that side. Um, and I do think we, we need to, like the, the two work extremely well together. Um, and I did, when I was doing the research for this episode, I did read that the Great African Sea Forest is actually growing. Is that, is that right? Um, there is some literature that seems to um, suggest it's growing, mm -hmm. but I'm not um, entirely I think it's more stable myself. When I when I look uh, at the forest I know, it doesn't appear to be actually growing. Mm. It's actually diminishing in some places and growing in others. And when I see, sometimes we have these warming events and I see uh, this, the forest struggling a lot and the cold comes back and then it regenerates. Um, it's fairly stable at the moment, which is good. But it's a very fragile ecosystem, as you know. You know, only second to coral reefs. They're one of the most fragile ecosystems on Earth. So, it is kind of terrifying with um, the warming oceans. What could happen? But we are very fortunate. It's one of the healthiest um, kelp forests on the planet. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say it's a, it's a rarity to hear that because mm. everywhere else in the world seems to be especially kelp forests, things like seagrass beds, we're losing them at a really alarming rate. Um, and you, you mentioned the, the warming seas, but are there any other threats facing the kelp forests here? Yeah, I mean, there are you know, lots of uh, threats. We've got you know, um, pollution problems, we've got overfishing, we've got poaching. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, there are these multiple threats from all over the place. People trying to survive, wanting to extract the kelp even itself. That, and that's what I find, it's not often just one thing, it's these multiple, often 
small threats that add up to a lot when you combine them. And there's only so much an ecosystem, even an ecosystem with this much, it's got a lot of resilience here, an enormous amount of nutrients. But, um, you know, we really need to give it a rest and, and let her recover. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, this human connection with the ocean and we're both very lucky and privileged in that we're able to go into the sea every day and, you know, see these environments. But for a lot of people, the ocean isn't accessible to them. They live in towns, they live in cities or are too far away to get into the water. So do you have any, are there any ways that they can still stay connected to the underwater world? They are, uh, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can start, if say if you're in the, in the if you're in the furthest place away from the sea on the planet, in the middle of one of these huge continents, for instance, you will still be relying on the phytoplankton in the ocean for breathing. So literally, you know, every second breath or third breath you take is directly coming from the ocean. So just to be aware of that is to be connected to the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then there's almost, you know, no areas where there aren't uh, bodies of water. And in my mind, the, the ocean, I see the ocean extending up all the rivers. Because that water has flowed into the ocean and is moving around the planet, it was once ocean. So there's this one body of water that's on this planet that is in the oceans, it's in the rivers, it's also in the plants. So there's an enormous body of water, giant torrents of water inside trees, inside plants, inside the soil. We're actually surrounded by this, the one ocean of water, actually. Mm -hmm. So no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't experienced that till not that long ago uh, when I was in a river, a tidal river, and I could feel that ocean breathing miles up the river and back, and then suddenly realized it's actually everywhere, no matter where you are. It's in the air as well. There's this massive ocean of, of water in the air that's connected to the, the salt ocean. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you swim in dams, in lakes, in rivers, you can, you can connect with that. It's obviously much easier if you're next to the ocean, but it can still be, uh, it can still be accessed. And I'm sure there's, there's, there's many other ways, yeah. <laughs> but those are the things that just came to mind right now. Yeah, good things to, to even just think about and also vice versa, vice versa as well. So the things that you're doing, even if you live, you know, hours away from the sea, they will, they will eventually reach the yes. ocean okay. yeah so things like uh, getting microfibers off your clothes that eventually ends up in the ocean your rubbish whatever you're recycling whether you're recycling it well all of these things make a difference um and sometimes when i feel a little overwhelmed i like to remember that uh, that fact about your breath so every second or third breath is linked to the ocean and the phytoplankton. Um, it helps me feel connected when I'm in the middle of London, <laughs> which I find very hard. Um, so we've come into the end of the podcast. I've just got two 
final questions. You're okay for a time. Um, and you've said before that, and in this podcast as well, that you learn so much from Mother Nature and the the animals that live, you know, especially under the water, but just everywhere. But is there a particular lesson that you would like to share with our listeners that they can take forwards, you know, wherever they are in the world? Well, one thing that pops to mind is um, I've studied these small sharks that I mentioned earlier um, in the kelp forest, and particularly the pajama cat shark. And I've you know, seen them laying the eggs, and I've seen that tiny shark embryo forming in that egg. And it often seems incredibly difficult for that animal. The whelks are drilling through there and killing them. The sea stars are killing them. <laughs> um, it feels like it's a harsh world out there, you know, full of predators. And that's the initial understanding. And that's what I first saw when I was, you know, in the early days in the forest. But then as I got to know the system better, what I saw was an ecosystem that was just supporting that tiny shark mm. in incredible ways. Just everything was actually supporting life and supporting that little shark. So the entire incredibly complex biological intelligence is supporting and wanting life to flourish and is actually support even and the predators are there also mm -hmm. to support that you know they weave out the weak and the shark is you know lays an egg in the wrong kind of place so everything is actually supporting life and that's often as humans we feel very fragile we feel afraid we feel lost and yet we have this incredible ecosystem and this mother that is just loving and supporting us in a million ways so it can feel you know <laughs> scary out there but actually we've got these multiple levels of biodiversity, life, nature, and then, you know, a whole mysterious underlying reality that, you know, quantum physics and other, other extraordinary scientists are beginning to see now also supporting this life mm -hmm. in a way. So we've got this unbelievable life support system. Mm -hmm. And if we see the magnificence of it through nature connection, it pushes us closer to what indigenous people were feeling, that primal joy, that um, rapture that you sense when you feel the separateness breaking down and you feel that connection to the wild and you feel your wild being starting to, the heartbeat starting to beat inside. And then, then you feel alive and you, a tremendous amount of that fear dissipates. And you can really, you know, live as we were designed mm, to live. Absolutely, yeah. I think a lot of people, a lot of people can relate to that, especially after the the last couple of years. Um, and I, I love the vision of that, you know, that little shark egg being supported by everything around it. I definitely felt that. Um, so I came into a lot of that kind of ocean 
connection. I've always been very connected to the sea, uh, obviously because I grew up next to it, but it was more of a, I don't know, a pastime, a hobby way to have fun. And I never really thought too much about it until my dad passed away. And then I did really struggle with, you know, a lot of feelings of anxiety and uncertainty and unsureness. Um, And that exact, I felt very cradled by the only way I could describe it is that I felt extremely supported and very cradled by the ocean. Wonderful. Um, and that's, I really explored that, you know, in my, in my mid-twenties. Um, and I keep trying to remind myself of that now every time life feels a little bit overwhelming. And um, it's like, no, you're part of this much bigger thing. Um, and you feel very small in the best way possible. And I think that that really does help you. But this has been such a fantastic conversation. And I'm so glad that we we got the chance to do this in person. And we've talked about a lot of very profound things and very deep things. And it feels almost wrong to ask you the final question. <laughs> but some people do, some people do, uh, some people do find this a very uh, meaningful question and give it a lot of thought. And other people, uh, I had one uh, one guest on, Kieran, who said she would be a leopard ray because she wears leopard print a lot. So, yeah, <laughs> very varied question. But the final question is, if you could be any species of shark, ray or skate in the world, what would you be and why? So when I heard you would ask that question, <laughs> I remembered something that happened quite recently uh-huh. where I kind of just wanted to be this animal uh, for a while. I was working um, with Save Our Seas in one of the remote research stations. A magnificent uh, day and I dived down and there was um, a mangrove whipray. And I uh, approached it and suddenly there was like this gunshot underwater. It was so loud and I felt the vibration right through my body. And I was filming at the time and you can see on the film my whole body like just reacting as if I'd been shot. And I had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it can't be this ray. Maybe this ray, it was feeding at the time, and maybe it's disturbed a pistol shrimp or something. And this, it was such a loud sound mm-hmm. and, and such a, a, a powerful shock ray. So I um, got hold of James Lee, um, who's your Save Our Seas CEO and a Lasma Brank specialist. And I, I told him, you know, what, what do you think this could be? And he sent me this new paper on amazing paper, science paper, on this species of ray and one other ray that can make this incredible underwater sound. Uh, And it was so uh, exciting for me to understand the science and see what I'd experienced. And then James said he'd seen these rays uh, doing this to to big bull sharks to keep them away. And it's quite new. It's uh, this this knowledge is, is quite new to science. But it made me, for a moment, I'd come out of a very stressful time and suddenly was immersed in this incredible environment. And I just wanted to be one of these mangrove whip rays for a while. It was just like they lie on the bottom dead still just for hours doing nothing. Then they feed a bit. Then <laughs> a shark might try and come and eat them. And then they, you know, put out these incredible sounds. Yeah. 
And it's just this incredibly simple but complex life. Mm. And I often want to, I often just want to be a cephalopod or a shark or a ray for even five minutes, mm -hmm. just to feel what it's like to have that mind. Mm -hmm. I would give almost anything just to experience what it actually feels like. I've got the vaguest sense of this, you know, all this big monkey mind nonsense just shutting down. When I've gone into the real cold for a long time, I find my whole front brain shutting down mm -hmm. and that reptilian primal shark brain in the back, just the quietness, the beautiful quietness of it, the presence, the pure presence. So I kind of imagine it's like that, mm -hmm. like mostly tremendous calm mm -hmm. with moments of incredible intensity, life and death intensity. That's what I imagine it's like. And then just calm mm -hmm. and not worrying too much about the past or the future or when you're going to live or die. Mm -hmm. But just being... Very much be in the here and now. Yes, and I imagine that what it's like to be a mangrove with prey. And I would kind of, part of me would just love to be that. <laughs> Was this in Daros on the socials? Yes. yes, I think I would also like to be there as well. <laughs> Pretty idyllic. Uh, that was a fantastic, I, I knew you would give a great answer to that question, but that was a fantastic answer. Um, but with that, we've come to the end of our World of Shocks podcast. And with all of this talk about the ocean and the sea, I feel very much the need to get in it now. So. <laughs> You're heating up. Yeah. Yeah, so so we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for your time and for all of your very considered answers. Um, yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, wonderful to talk to you and uh, thanks for all the great questions and your interesting life. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our amazing visuals were created by Jamie Silver. Our beautiful logo was made by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. Thank you very much to Craig and his partner Swati for not only hosting us, but also showing us the beauty of the kelp forest and taking the time to talk to us in such great detail about it. We will leave links to everything in the show notes as always, but for now you can find out more about the work that they do over at www.seachangeproject.com. And as always, thank you at home for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, how about leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app? It means a lot to us and it helps more people to find us. And if you want a topic covered, a question answered, or you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you. Please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com or on social media, we are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.